Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is truly the thrill of thrills don't miss it this time guys welcome back to the tragedy of cinema podcast i'm your host jimbo and today joined by my co-host kyle kyle today we'll we'll be talking about uh, probably one of my favorite monster movies uh from years gone we're talking about the great king kong king kong king kong so kyle before we start you got a question for me got a question for you all right what is your favorite monster movie favorite monster movie oh gosh you know it's 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 Almost slightly embarrassing because it's so modern. Um, but I, honestly, Godzilla: King of the Monsters is probably the definitive monster movie in my eyes right now. I absolutely love it. It's got an all-star cast, balls of the wall action, and it just it brings in so many monsters from the kaiju network, uh, the um, the the Showho era, and all kind of stuff with King Ghidorah, Rodan, and Mothra, and Godzilla. Yeah, like Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, or dragon, whatever it was that movie yeah. that was great too. Yeah, um, so. You really can't go wrong with King Kong or Godzilla movies, personally. Yeah. But there's some really odd ones that are pretty good too. Uh, one of my, my favorite, my favorite kaiju monster though was a uh, Gigan. Yeah, yeah, the guy with the two like um, like hook arm hands and the and the circular saw on his chest. It is the most ridiculous looking monster ever, and I love him. <laughs> yeah, I've always been a fan of like uh, not Mothra, but uh, Rodan. I Ro- liked Rodan. He Rodan's a classic cool. too. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah. So, um, what's your favorite, what's your favorite um, mush movie though? Probably, I really, really, you know, and I'll say it. Uh, I thought King Kong, or Kong versus Godzilla, Godzilla versus Kong. I thought it was really well done, but Kong Skull Island was really good. Um, really solid, yeah. And I like when you watch Kong uh, or King Kong, um, and we'll get into some rights issues here a little bit later. Of why it's Kyle's going to get complicated? Yeah. yeah, but um. I like. I'm a big fan of like the stop animation stuff. Um, I think you lose some of that in the CGI world that we're in. Um, even though some people like it better because it gives them more action, they can do more things with it. Mm-hmm. But there was just something special about you know like Clash of the Titans with Medusa. The, you know yeah. just the different stop animations. Jason and the Argonauts. 
a lot of these other movies, I, I just like that style. Yeah, that's a preferential style. I, I would say definitely like uh, in like the the best thing about like having stop motion is every move has to be so incredibly deliberate. They have to make sure they get it right and they do it right first time. That and so many directors don't have that kind of finesse or like uh, kind of like well, it's like that Tim, attention to Tim detail. Burton. Yeah, like Tim you know. Burton has that attention to detail, and like I would say, like I personally, because I'm a big Del Toro fan, I think he has attention to that detail in CG movies, but like virtually no other director has that kind of attention to detail in other like CG heavy movies, stuff like that too. Right. Oh, uh, and also I give credit to like having a a guy in a giant rubber suit. I love those too. <laughs> so, um, when I proposed this movie to Kyle, I had no idea how large this was going to be. Um, this is a lot to take in um and at the end of this uh, i'll even throw something in that's gonna me and kyle just sit down and watch a little bit of it it will blow your mind of where this came from so we'll get <laughs> yeah. to that at the end um but kyle let's go and take it this way because it's going to take us a while to get through this stuff okay all right um king kong um first released in new york city in march 2nd 1993 hey it's March 2nd today when we're recording it this. It is March 2nd, 1990. Oh, wow. Yeah. It has been 89 years <laughs> to that the is day crazy. that we're recording this podcast. <laughs> and released more broadly in the United States on April 7th, which I believe actually will be the um, birthday podcast um, day we'll be recording that too. So actually, uh, we have <laughs> we almost share two anniversaries with it right now. That's pretty crazy. Um, it has a running time of 100 minutes. 104, if you count the overture in the movie. Um, it's released by RKO, um, by the RKO, RKO Radio Pictures Company, um, directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoenstack. I can't really pronounce that proper name properly. Screenplay by James Creelman and Ruth Rose. Story by Edgar Wallace and Marion C. Cooper. And uh, let's see here. We have a budget of... $672,254.75, which is the equivalent of about $14.5 million in today's budget. So a very modest film, even for the time, I believe. And we have a box office um, getting uh, box office uh, earnings of $5.3 million in 1933. Very impressive. Mm. Which would be the equivalent of $114.6 million today. So that's kind of a, you know, for the time, that's a hit. <laughs> And that that and that, that's how it reached the meeting, which was 1933, 89 years ago. That's that's incredible. So that's good stuff there. Um, moving on to the uh, details of the movie. Where did the work at? I had it right over here just a second ago, and I lost it immediately. Really, Kyle? I did. I did. I did. Want to just do a cut? Want to do a quick cut, real quick? And we'll, no, we'll just. I, I need to find it real, real quick. To- yeah. While Kyle's doing that, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. Oh, I just found, I just found it. I, I, I know. I'm a genius. I know. Um, <laughs> technical details. We, of course, have a sound mix of mono uh, uh, by RCA Photophone System. Color info. This is a black and white film. Aspect ratio. This is a 1.19 by 1. Uh, really sick, close to a 29 by 9, but not quite. Um, camera. We use the Michelle camera. Never heard of that one before. Film length, we have 2,752 meters, or 11 reels. Process was spherical. Printed format was 35 millimeters. Then we're going on to the original Terrence section. We have the awards. Um, starting with, we have the uh, whoa, we have the 1991 National Film Preservation Award in the U.S. of A. For the one, the National Film Registry, of course. We also have the Online Film and Television Association Awards, where it won the official Film Hall of Fame Motion Picture Award. In 2008, it won the Best Movie to Watch at a Drive-In Award um, at the TV Land Awards. And in 2006, at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films in the USA, it won Best Classic Film DVD Release for the King Kong 2-Disc Special Edition. It also has the 2005 Satellite Awards, where it was nominated for Outstanding Classic DVD in 2005 and Outstanding DVD Extras. So it's not like that King Kong collection was pretty spectacular, if you ask me, or the people at uh, Satellite Awards. Okay, and next up, we're going to move on to the cast here. We have a pretty slim lineup today, because I didn't do the full cast notes before I left today, so we got it off the computer here today, so... Be a little brief on that, but we have um, 
Faye Ray as Anne Darrow. Um, she's a Canadian-born American actress. Faye Ray played a bit parts in Hollywood until cast as the lead as Erich von Stroyhams in the silent film The Wedding March in 1928. She met con co-directors Cooper and Schrodstack when cast as um, Ethne Estes to The Four Feathers in 1929. Cooper cast her as Eva Talbridge in The Most Dangerous Game in 1932. And after the RKO board approved the contest, Cooper decided a blonde would provide a contrast to the driller's more darker um, pelt hair. Um, Dorothy Jordan, Jean Harlow, and Ginger and Ginger Rogers were considered for the role, but went with Ray, who wore a blue wig in the film and was inspired more by Cooper's enthusiasm than the script to accept the role. According to her other art. Her autobiography, on the other hand, um, Ray recounts that Cooper had her had told her she planned to star her opposite the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood. Of course, <laughs> well, Kong. Hilarious. Um, she assumed he meant Clark Gable <laughs> until he showed her a picture <laughs> of Kong climbing the entire the Empire State Building. On the film's 50th anniversary in 1983, one of New York Cedars held a Fay Ray scream-alike contest in its lobby, and on August 10, 2004, two days after Ray died, the lights of the Empire State Building were dimmed for 15 minutes in her memory. Yep. Next up, we have Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham. Um, Michigan, um, uh, Robert Armstrong is a Michigan native and veteran Broadway and silent film actor. Um, Robert played Ray's alcoholic brother in The Most Dangerous Game and during the filming became a member of the Cooper Shochik Inner Circle. He was a shoo-in as Denham when, um, when Kong was cast. The film's romantic angle... Um, was played up after the animal films fared poorly at the box office in the early months of 1933. One exhibitor displayed a promotional still of Ray swooning Armstrong, Armstrong's arms with the caption, Their heart stood still, for there stood Kong, a love story of today that spans the ages. Although the film's romantic subplot belongs to Cabot and Ray, established star Armstrong was chosen for the ad rather than the unknown Cabot. Months later, Armstrong again played Carl Denham in Carl in Kong's sequel, Son of Kong. Whew. Okay, next up we have Bruce Cabot as John, or Jack Driscoll. New York native um, was signed by Stilnick as a contract player um, and met Cooper when auditioning for The Most Dangerous Game. He almost walked out of his Kong audition, mistakenly believing that he was trying out for the stunt double role instead of the actual <laughs> lead role, but was convinced otherwise and received the role of Jack Driscoll, his first starring role, which was his first starring role. He was an inexperienced actor and described his rotation in the Kong as standing in the right place, doing what he was told, and collecting the paycheck. Then, very quickly, we have Frank Riker as Captain Inglehorn, Sam Hardy as Charles Weston, Noble Johnson as the Native Chief, and Steve Clemente as the Witch King. What a name in a, in a movie. Like, what's your credit as? I'm the Witch King. <laughs> you know, it's like a Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe kind of, kind of role. Uh, anyways, that is the cast of King Kong. Jimbo, take it from me. <laughs> take it away. Give me words. <laughs> All right, so uh, Cooper's first vision of this film was... Uh, a giant ape on top of the Empire State Building, uh, you know, on the world's tallest building. Um, and he actually started with that and worked his way back to fill in the story. So that's pretty amazing that you start with the giant ape on top of the Empire State Building and work your way back. So <laughs> fill in the blanks. Really, yeah. <laughs> uh, this movie grossed over $90,000 on its opening weekend, which was the biggest opening ever at the time. Mm-hmm. So, in what, 1933? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the success of this film is often credited for saving RKO Pictures from bankruptcy. So, um, I think we'll talk about it a little bit later where there was somebody that wanted to buy it from them. And they were like, nah. So, they kept it. It ended up being like they a huge lost a hit that saved their dollars, whole company. Yeah. And yeah, being a big deal. Even later then, they still kind of sold stuff on. Yeah. Um, despite having a major impact on the story and receiving fourth billing, Frank Riker as Captain Inglehorn disappears after Kong's capture on the island and doesn't appear at all in the New York scenes. <laughs> uh, King Kong's roar was actually a lion's roar and a tiger's roar combined, slowed down and run backwards. Mm-hmm. 
I'm kind of curious, actually. I have no idea how you do that from an analog perspective of t- combining two recordings like that. Besides, it's like playing them together at the same time and then recording that sound. I don't know. I don't know. And this kind of interesting thing. You know, like digitally, I just like, you, you merge the file, you're done. One of the problems that they were coming across is, um, if you notice, like the trees and the plants in the background of the stop animation says, uh, some of them were real plants and some of them were uh, metal models. So one day during filming, a flower on the miniature set bloomed <laughs> without anybody <laughs> noticing. Uh, the error in continuity uh, continuity was not noticed until the film was developed and shown. While Kong moved, a time lapse effect showed the flower coming into full bloom, and an entire day of animation was lost. Oh man, <laughs> I, I, I would love to see that though. That sounds so cool. Um, another flaw that remains just, in the animation. Like, wait, wait, so, so, just imagine like Kong fighting in a giant flower. That sounds so awesome. That is just a, that is a that is like a junk drug trip. <laughs> so one of the flaw that remains in the animation is the way Kong's fur seems to move constantly, showing where the animators had to grab the figure to actually move it. Though the animators would brush the fur constantly to hide their work, it still shows up in the finished film. Many other filmmakers who have used the same technique actually admire this flaw because it shows that the work was done by skilled artists using their hands. Mm. That's another thing where, like, you know, even as years go by, where it's like, you know, like... I don't know if like stop motion ever looked real to somebody watching the film even at the time, but now you can go watch it and just appreciate the amount of work and artistry that goes into it every single time and really right. appreciate that. So, so yeah, I think that's a great part of the film. Uh, the 18-inch model of King Kong, there was actually several models made, but the 18-inch one was made from a metal mesh skeleton, a mixture of rubber and foam for the muscle structures, and rabbit fur for his hair. Hmm. I wonder how many rabbits were harmed for the making of all of them. That's why there's no more rabbits because he made Kong. (laughs) See King Kong with a rabbit's keychain, rabbit rabbit foot keychain. (laughs) This brings you luck. It's my little Kong foot. (laughs) You're you're Kong foot. You're dragging it behind your car. What's that? That's my lucky Kong foot. Kong foot. Um, the, um, Edgar Wallace submitted his first draft for the screenplay in 1932 under the title "The Beast." Unfortunately, the novice died. The novelist died before he could begin revisions. The final screenplay bears little relation to his efforts, but he is still credited as Marion C. Cooper had promised him full credit. So mm. That's kind of an honorable thing to do there. <laughs> uh, for the scene of Anne and Kong's hand, um, the. Uh, she was actually at, the hand was actually attached to a crane, and then the crane was raised ten feet into the air. First, the technician put her in the hand and closed the fingers around her. Then the hand was lifted up for filming. She would later say that terror in those scenes were actually real in her eyes. The more she struggled, the looser the hand's grip grew. When she thought she was about to fall, she had to signal for Cooper to stop the film. Oh wow, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure she wasn't in. The, the proper protective equipment, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. All 1933, that. there was uh, zero precautions. I'm sure. Well, can we just say that there's a moment in this movie where there's King Kong and he's starting to peel away your clothes, and you're like, "What is going what on? What is here? happening right now?" It's <laughs> yeah, not, so it's it's kind of weird. It's uh, it's it's a 1930 movie <laughs> for better and for worse. Well, we'll so we'll talk about a 1930 movie later. That <laughs> certainly for the worst. Yeah, yeah. Um, when the T Rex enters the scene, he stops to scratch the left side of his head with his left paw. Only O'Brien would add at least six hours of work for such a slight but telling gesture. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, the old uh, Arabian proverb opening during the film's first scene was actually written by Marion Cooper. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, wow. Let me turn. Okay, I got one big note here. Oh, um, how com- big? Uh, it's, it is, uh, it's Kong, Kong size. size. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is literally about Kong's size, actually. Kong's size changes drastically throughout the course of the film. While creator Marion C. Cooper envisioned Kong as being between 40 to 50 feet tall, animator Willis H. O'Brien and his crew built models that set scaling Kong to only be about 18 feet tall on Skull Island, and then rescaled him to be 24 feet tall in New York. This did not stop Cooper from playing around with Kong's size as he directed the special effects sequences. By manipulating the size of the miniatures and the camera angles, he made Kong appear a lot larger than O'Brien originally wanted. 
even as large as around 60 feet in some scenes. As Cooper stated in the interview, I was a great believer in constantly changing Kong's height to fit the settings and the illusions. He's different in almost every shot. Sometimes he's only 18 feet tall and sometimes 60 feet or larger. This broke every rule that O'Brien and his animators had ever worked with, but I felt confident that if the scenes moved with excitement and beauty, the audiences would accept any height that fitted into the scene. For example... If Kong had only been eight feet tall, eight feet eight feet high on the top of the Indian Empire State Building, he would have been lost like a little bug. I constantly juggled the heights of the trees and dozens of other things. That the one essential thing was to make the audience enthralled with the character of Kong, so he wouldn't notice or care that he was eight feet teen, eighteen feet high or forty feet high, just as long as he fitted the mystery and the excitement of the scenes in the action. Concurrently, the Kong bust made for the film was built in scale with a 40-foot ape, while the full-sized hand we mentioned earlier was built to a scale of 70 foot, 70 feet. And meanwhile, RKO's promotional materials listed Kong's official height as 50 feet. Well, let me ask you a question. Yes. How long did it take for them to get uh, Kong from the island back to New York? Because I have heard um, on several different films or documentaries or whatever that Kong was actually still a, a, a child, and that he actually grew by the time he got to New York. So, uh, so you would think as much as like it would be at least a month, if not more, two months to get him from one place to the other. If you, well, considering like they have to get a shipping container down all the there in the entire first place, and then back again to New York. You're talking about like two, four, possibly even six months to get him to New York. So you could certainly imagine a, a if it was a child like King Kong growing as much as six feet in that time. Just going from, like, 18 feet to, like, 24 feet could make sense if he was, you know, fed and allowed to exercise. Well, I was going to say, still. he was also on, if what we've learned from more recent movies, is mm-hmm. that, you know, on that island, things just grew bigger anyway. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, my question is, would he continue to grow outside of the his natural habitat at the same rate as he would on the island? Uh, yes, I would imagine so. I, I guess it, it kind of depends on how you just want to think about the internal lore of it. I mean, uh, clearly from the most recent films in Skull Island, um, they, they clearly establish that he just keeps growing regardless. You know, and, and even, in, even in the current films, I think you're pretty sure they're saying he's still technically growing to be larger. And uh, in this film, I mean, that's not really something they thought of, I'm sure, just because, you know, 1930s movie, they just thought the giant cool. Um, but kinda yeah, if, watch- if, if you want to make your own lore about it, then actually that... that does make sense, and there's no reason that he would stop growing just because he was off Skull Island. There's but no I didn't know if he would still grow at the same, because maybe, you know, like the um, Hollow Earth and all that, you know, where... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I could I could try and some, contrive some excuse why he couldn't grow fast <laughs> as fast off Skull Island, but, but I can't think again, of is he really good? I don't know if they would really feed him, because if he's... Uh, they have to have him It's like an entire planetary every day. Yeah, it's movies, I really man. want to watch Kong vs. Godzilla again. So. Yeah, yeah. Jimbo, uh, this is fictitious. It, no, Kong isn't real. <laughs> Stop. According to Orville Goldner in The Making of King Kong, the film came out at 13 reels. And you know what? 13 reels is an unlucky number, according to Cooper, because he was like... It's the horror. I don't want number three. We have to shoot another scene. <laughs> so they, they shot another scene to bring it to 14 reels, which was the elevated train sequence, which Cooper had wanted to put in there all along. In the technical details, it said 11 reels, actually. Right. So that's interesting. <laughs> but, I mean, just because you shot it doesn't mean that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was cut so, down to, right. I'm sure. That makes more sense. Um, yeah. Authors Daniel Loxton and Donald Prothero, in their 2013 book, Abominable Science, argue that their UK release... Uh, of King Kong in the spring of 1933 led directly to the supposed sightings of a sea monster in Loch Ness, Scotland. The first sightings of the supposed Loch Ness monster occurred within six months of the film's release. The descriptions and blurry photos of Nessie that emerged from 1933 um, on seemed likely inspired by the scene in King Kong in which a prehistoric water beast uh, is a uh, man-eating brontosaurus attacks the searchers on a raft. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, just a question for you. Like, Grant, there have been old sea monster movies in the past, but isn't it crazy we have not seen a giant, big, giant, big-budget, you know, Loch Ness monster movie even right now? I, you know what? Out of all the cryptids and stuff like that, I like the Loch Ness monster one the best. I just think it's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, just researching it, uh, podcasts about it, uh, documentaries about it. 
Now, are some of them fake? Absolutely. Um, but I do believe there's stuff in the ocean that we still haven't discovered oh, or know because we'll, we'll it's so down. deep. Yeah. Uh, and if there was going to be a dinosaur living, I think it would be a water one that's in the depths of the ocean that... Yeah. You know what I mean? Be so, that really cool. Especially yeah. when you have them giant squids that wash up on shore and all that. Oh, giant squids are so cool. I know. Yeah. Need whole movies about those, too. Yeah, I just like, I just like, you know, they should make a, a big a big budget live, you know, live action movie about Loch Ness Monster and put some crazy now, Lovecrafting stuff in there. This next fact, which would have been awesome to put in the studio here, is the 22-inch or the 56-centimeter high model of King Kong used in the film sold at an auction in 2009 for about $203,000. It was originally covered in cotton, rubber, liquid latex, and rubber fur, but most of the covering has decomposed over the decades. A similarly constructed model of a Triceratops is owned by Peter Jackson, which he used in his own recreation of the Lost Spider Pit sequence. Cool. Um, actually, that brings me to the, my fact right here. During filming, the rubber in the miniature of Kong's model would rapidly dry out, so the model had to be continually rebuilt. So I'm actually surprised that it survived like all the way to, 2000, to say 2009 yeah. right there. So yeah, I'm amazed there's any like resemblance of it left. You'd think it'd just be like some kind of metal skeleton, basically. You're just like, but wouldn't it be cool it to have? Kong. Yeah, but at that point, I would still just buy a new model of Kong at that point. <laughs> For two hundred thousand dollars, it's yeah. a historical artifact. I know, but still, like I, I just want Kong. In my it room. belongs in a museum. I, I don't want something that was responsible for making the Kong movie. I want Kong. <laughs> the uh, animated models had to be shot one frame at a time with minute adjustments between each shot. It often took an entire afternoon to get the twenty-four exposure needed to fill in one second of screen time. Mm-hmm. The battle between King Kong and the pterodactyl took seven weeks to film. The method of stop-motion photography proved to be a time-honored method of visual effects and was used for many decades by other effect artists like Ray Harryhausen, which is one of my favorites, and Phil Tippett. Yeah, it's it's, like, it's, also, it's almost uh, directly comparable in terms of like time frame to, to film footage to, I think, like, the original Toy Story to some degree. Like, I think like Toy Story was like... It's like two weeks for like 30 seconds or even like that for like the longest time. It was like two weeks of development time for just 30 seconds of footage. Yeah. And then actually that's roughly equivalent to most stop motion productions back in the day. I don't know if they've sped it up at all now or how I'm modern. sure they probably have. I I know they do a lot of cool stuff now, especially with like um like almost like flesh tones and like little puppeteer moments like that. But I don't know how how well production times have gone now. I should look that up. Yes, Kyle, <laughs> you should. That'd be great. Maybe we for do. our next real talk, you <laughs> can right. have that figured out. We'll figure, yeah, we'll look into it. Yeah, uh, that'd be a cool thing about we'll talk about the history of stop motion. Maybe in real talk. Most um, sequences had to be shot nonstop, often requiring twenty-four or sorry, twenty-hour workdays. Sometimes the shrubs used to just the measure sits would actually wilt during the filming. <laughs> At one point, one of the plants on the set, as we said, flowered. Uh, before a scene could be started, all the lights on the soundstage had to be replaced with new ones to make sure they wouldn't flicker during the scene. The stage had to be sealed and nobody could leave or enter to prevent any wind from moving the foliage. Oh my gosh. So can you imagine changing the lights every scene? If you had 20 lights up in the air or whatever, you know, that would just... Yeah, lower them all, all back down. Just, like, like, talk about a miserable working environment, surely. You know, nice. I don't know how any film actually got made in the 1920s to the 1940s. Just like, Every film just sounds like a harrowing adventure of loss. <laughs> just like, oh uh, the film, This film, along with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from 1937, and Laurel and Hardy movies were thought to be Adolf Hitler's favorites. <laughs> you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Maybe yeah, Hitler had good film taste. We don't know. <laughs> well, the Nazi Party special console assigned to monitor Hollywood films thought this scary monster ape <laughs> movie might possibly be an attack on the nerves of the German people. <laughs> just, I just, I just, I just, I hate the title. Just like the ad, you know, King Kong, the favorite of the Third Reich. Just, just really. Uh, <laughs> Hell, Kong. <laughs> oh no! There's so many terrible things that could no. Just this would be cool to own too. The uh, at the time of the film's release, select theaters offered free promotional 150 piece jigsaw puzzles uh, featuring Kong battling the T Rex. Examples in good condition have recently sold for over four thousand dollars. Kyle, are you okay you, with you, it? You just threw me off the rails because now my whole thought of just like all the anti-Semitic things Hitler would say in relation to Kong and just it's it's absolutely awful. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. 
Yes, you're right. This film's up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take one right now here. Um, the whole film was shot over the past eight months. Um, Faye, Faye Ray was able to shoot Doctor X in 1932, The Most Dangerous Game in 1932, and The Mystery of Wax Museum in 1933. In between her King Kong assignments, yeah, she did four movies. Yeah, four movies. So, yeah, so, after yeah. Kong wrapped. Mm-hmm. Each night, the Kong models had to have their skins removed so Marco, or sorry, Marcel Delgado could tighten the hinges on the metal structures. Yeah. Um, the reason for the wall and the large gates on Skull Island is because the Kong race, there were a race of giant apes on Skull Island in the past, apparently, helped build the wall and the gates under the direction of the islanders. The Kong race was controlled by certain herbs and helped the original builders build the wall and gates to keep the dinosaurs out on the other side of the movie took place. So that's kind of cool internal lore that apparently they had built into it um, even before, even for the first film in the 1930s. They apparently right. had the idea of the giant wall was built by the apes themselves. So really cool film back there. Are you ready for this one? Is it more? Please don't be no. more Nazi stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Jimbo. You know what you call like Hogan's Hero of the Stalag 13? What would you call it? Hitler <laughs> yeah. probably has a camp out there for like uh, cryptids. Like he's got Bigfoot, he's got Kong, he's got Godzilla. The alternate, rel- the alternate universe of the Hitler film collection. <laughs> uh, Marion Cooper and Ernest Shostak. Shootstack? Shootstack? Mm-hmm. We'll just call him Ernest V. I, 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 I tried it too. Um, yeah. They have been wrestlers. Yes, okay. the classic so, wrestlers. Not, and they our, act, not our wrestlers. And they acted out the fighting moves for the battle between the T-Rex and Gong in the effects studio before the animators shot the scene. And I'm wondering, is this where RKO Productions came out because RKO came out of nowhere? Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> Randy Orton made King Kong. Kong. <laughs> What would you have done if you see King Kong just RKO the T Rex out of He's out of nowhere? And then even the new movie. Yeah. They, and, okay, okay, seriously. And the Godzilla vs. Kong that just came out, that was straight up just a wrestling match between two <laughs> monsters. It wasn't even like a kaiju no fight. Holds barred. That really was just. <laughs> if King Kong RKO'd Godzilla, that would have been amazing. <laughs> Are you almost. He kind of does, actually. <laughs> I gotta watch that again. It was really good. Um, that was the last movie we saw in theaters. Actually. Oh, here you go. Uh, um, the finished film utilized less than ten thousand feet of film, although two hundred and thirty-eight thousand feet were shot. Wow. So yeah. So I, I, for the for the time, especially, that's a whole lot of uh, money wasted. Yeah, wasted. Yeah, well, not wasted, but you know, still, yeah. that's a lot of footage being made and make a good film. Um, okay, the protagonist is referred to as Kong throughout the movie. Didim even says that it will be in lights on Broadway as Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. The next scene is dominated by a marquee that says King Kong. In one of the final acts, as Archeo as Archeos production chief David Slesnick changed the title of the film after the dialogue had been recorded. This is the only reference to King Kong in the entire movie which is the giant lit up sign that says King Kong. Alright Kyle, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yes. What are the other seven wonders of the world? It is uh, 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 Betty White <laughs> the RKO I was not under the giant was the eighth wonder of the world <laughs> The Office season three <laughs> I'm going to get the seven here. I'm going to get the seven here. Um, <laughs> Beowulf. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the Chaco Tacos um, are going to be on there somewhere. Exactly. Uh, the Sphinx in Egypt. Um, Great Wall of China. Exactly. Yeah, Great Wall of China. And one more. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, 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 it's Southern Indiana. <laughs> Southern Indiana. Wow. All right. Um, See, that's that's Seven Wonders of the World. You can write that on Wikipedia. It'll show right up. Uh, (laughs) When the film premiered on Easter Sunday in London, 12,000 people had to be turned away. Wow. Okay, that's cool. 12,000 people turned away. Old monster fans. That's how it goes. You know, yeah, yeah. Everyone was, everyone's a nerd. That's how it turns out. Like even all history, like everyone's a nerd. Uh, um, the T Rex hissing was achieved by combining a puma scream and high compression air. Like puma and high compression air. <laughs> the brontosaurus sounds were created by grunting into a double chambered gourd. Let's <laughs> hear. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh. Jimbo, this is the one you usually get. Um, included among the 1001 movies you must see before you die by even Steven Schneider. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Oh, yeah, I totally understand why. Uh, the title character, Kong, King Kong, doesn't mm-hmm. even appear until 46 minutes into this film. Mm-hmm. 
46 minutes in this film and only has about 40 minutes of screen time. So it's like he just he once he gets in, he's almost there for the entire movie. Yep. But um, it takes it takes a long time for him to get in there. Oh boy. Okay, you got one more note. Oh, I got a bunch of notes. Okay, you take you take one more, then I'm going to take on the huge rights thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, the native huts uh, were left over from RKO's Birds of Paradise in 1932. The Great Wall was part of the Temple of Jerusalem set for Cecil B. DeMille's biblical epic The King of Kings in 1927. The Great Wall set was later reused in David O. Selznick's The Garden of Allah in 1936. And finally, redressed with Civil War era building fronts burned and pulled down by a tractor to film the burning of Atlanta Munitions Warehouses in Gone with the Wind in 1939. So they reused that set multiple times. That's cool. I understand that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right. So uh, apparently King Kong and the wording of Kong has been in legal dispute basically since the beginning for the past you know, over 80 years now in many respects. And so I'm going to go into like um, – it's going to be difficult to explain this at all, and I probably won't do it justice, but I'll do the best I can to be like, okay, all this stuff went crazy. So RKO, who's consisted of the original film and its sequel, signed over the North American and Latin American and Australian distribution rights to a film library to Ted Turner in a period spanning 1986 to 1989 via the company Turner Entertainment. Turner merged this company with to Time Warner, now Warner Media, in 1996, which is how Warner Brothers owns distribution rights to those regions to those films today, with the copyright or the films, including King Kong and The Sound Kong, remaining with RKO Pictures. In 1998, Warner Brothers Family Entertainment released the direct-to-video animated musical film The Mighty Kong, which retells the plot of the original 1933 film, which this podcast is on. And 19 years later, in 2017, Warner co-produced the film Kong Skull Island in and in 2021 co-produced the film Godzilla vs. Kong after Legendary Pictures bought the projects brought the projects over from Universal to build up the MonsterVerse um whose rights were limited to only their 19 uh, and uh, their rights were only limited to their 1976 remake and they did a sequel to 1986 called King Kong Lives but they still needed Universal's permission to do so today most of the film library is owned by Studio Canal which includes the right to use these two films um, the domestic rights in 1976 King Kong films still remain with the film's original distributor, Paramount Pictures, with Trifecta Entertainment and media handling television rights to the film via their license of Paramount. So it's like that's like a mess of like four to five companies all trying to get mixed in there, and then Godzilla himself trying to like get the rights to put Kong in the Monsters Universe, but they also can't even call him King Kong, which is why we had Kong Skull Island and then Godzilla vs. Kong instead of like King Kong Skull Island or something right. like that. So that gets in the mess too. And then that goes further, and I'm just going to do a double stack with a note here of the legal rights. Um, years later from this film's original release, in 1962, um, Marion C. Cooper found out that RKO was licensing the character through John Beck to Toho Studios in Japan for a film project called King Kong vs. Godzilla, the original one in Great 1963. Movie. Cooper had consumed the rights were unassailable um, and was bitterly opposed to the project. In 1963, he filed a lawsuit to enjoin distribution of the movie against John Beck, as well as Toho and Universal, the film's U.S. copyright holder. Um, Cooper discovered that RKO had also profited, profited from licensed product featuring the King Kong character, such as model kicks produced by Aurora Plastic Corporations. Cooper's executive assistant... <laughs> Charlie's Fitz Simon stated these companies should be negotiating through him and Cooper for such licensed products and not RKO. In a letter to Robert Bendick, Cooper stated, My hassle is about King Kong. I created the character long before I came to RKO and have always believed I retained subsequent picture rights and other rights. I sold to RKO the right to make one original picture, King Kong, and also later Son of Kong, but that was all. Cooper and his legal team offered up various documents to bolster the case that Cooper owned King Kong and only licensed the character to RKO for those two films, rather than selling him outright. Many people vouched for Cooper's claim, including David O. David o. Selznick, who had written the letter to Mr. A. Um, Lothenthal um, of the famous artist syndicate in the Chicago in 1932, stating in regard to Kong, the rights of this are owned by Mr. Marion C. Cooper. 
that Cooper had lost key documents through those years. He discovered these papers were missing after he returned from his World War II military service, such as key informal yet binding letter from Mr. Um, Azelworth and then president of RK Studio Group, RKO Studio Group and formal binding letter from Mr. B.B. Cathane, the current president of RKO Studio Group, confirming that Cooper had only licensed the rights to the character for those two RKO pictures and nothing more. Without these letters, it seemed Cooper's rights were regulated to the Lovelace novelization that he had copyrighted. He was able to make a deal with, for the uh, the um, Bantam Books copyright reprint of the Gold Key Comics adaptations of the novel, but that was all he could do. Cooper's lawyer had received a letter from Beck's lawyer, Gordon E. Youngman, that stated, For the sake of the record, I wish to state that I am not in negotiation with you or Mr. Cooper or anyone else to define Mr. Cooper's right in respect to King Kong. His rights are well defined and they are non-existent, except for a certain limited publication rights. In this letter addressed to Douglas Burden, Cooper lamented, It seems my hassle over Kong is destined to be a protracted one. They make me sorry I ever invented the beast. If it weren't so if I weren't so fond of him, it makes me feel like Macbeth, bloody instructions which taught um, which being taught returned to plague the inventor. So it seems that Marion C. Cooper is very disgruntled. Very disgruntled. Um, if he didn't love King Kong so much, he would almost hate that he created it in the first place because of all the hassle it gave him throughout uh, throughout his entire life there being and uh it's still to this day in a lot of a kind of a legal mess so just like it's owned by like you know kind of four different companies even five different companies and want to include everything who all want to stick a claim on kong but if anything it always should have belonged to cooper cooper in the first place right. so this is definitely a kind of a giant legal mess that i don't think will ever truly be fully solved unless there's some in massive consolidation which i don't want anyways <laughs> to ever get him under one house but uh, it, it's a it's a very long history of legal disputes of King Kong, especially, and that's why um, even in modern films right now he's just referred to as Kong and not King Kong, just to um, kind of subvert a couple other companies in the mix. Um, and that's why that's why he's kind of part of the monsters like that today. So that's the that's the that's the small. Gist It'd be really interesting to find a stuff. documentary about that whole situation, see if they can come to any conclusions. Or imagine if those original documents ever got found and proved that he was the original owner, like right. what that would do the the state, the people that, <laughs> that like his. His grandsons, if he has any right now. <laughs> um, crazy stuff, crazy stuff. And I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the show. Um, usually I play the trailer for the uh, movie at the beginning of our podcast. Um, but according to this note, there is actually no known theatrical trailers from the original 1933 release. Um, so if you heard one, great. I found one. Um, if not, I was uh, going to put something in here at the end. If I can find this seven-minute audio teaser titled, Kong is Coming. Um, they don't know if it was intended as a regular radio spot or a lobby attraction. They don't know. Uh, but the audio is drawn from a disc, sor- disc source and presents several minutes of sound effects, music, and dialogue from the original audio tracks, though not exactly as heard in the film. And the film is described by a very dramatic narrator. The teaser appears to use an alternate take film. Um, sorry, an alternate take of the dialogue as the adventurers walk around the dead stegosaurus and severe, severe, uh, several alternately mixed takes of Kong's Roaring. So, oh, it does say that the teaser is available to list on YouTube under the title The Kong is Coming. So I might throw that on here at the end if I can't find the uh, trailer at the beginning. So Hopefully can. That sounds really cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So, okay. This is not the right stuff again. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, after Marion C. Cooper got to RKO, a British mystery writer, Edgar Wallace, was contracted to write the first draft of she the She gave the story. RKO to a mystery writer. <laughs> <laughs> the RKO to a mystery writer. Ooh, it made him write a whole script afterwards. Um, yeah. um, it, it was simply your, the original script was simply referred to as the Beast. RKO executives were unimpressed with the bland title. Um, David Selden suggested Jungle Beast as the film's new title, but Cooper was unimpressed and wanted to make an wanted to name the film after the main character. He stated he liked the mystery word aspect of Kong's name that the film should carry, the name of the leading mysterious mysterious romantic savage creature of the story such as with uh, Dracula or Frankenstein, for example. Um, RKO sent a memo to Cooper suggesting the titles be um, Kong, King of the Beast, Kong, the Jungle King, and Kong, the Jungle Beast, which combined his and Selnick's proposed titles. 
As time went on, Cooper eventually named the story simply Kong, while Ruth Rose was writing the final version of the screenplay, because Sonics thought the audience would, would think of that film with the one-word title as just Kong would be mistaken for a uh, docudrama, um, similar to some other films that were released in the past, like um, Grass, A Nation's Battle for Life, which was released in 1925, just a one-word title, and Chang, which was a drama of the um, wilderness in 1927. And uh, so they added King to Kong's name in order to differentiate that as a natural fictitious film. So pretty cool detail there for how King Kong got his name. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Marion Cooper filmed the actor and actresses. Then William O'Brien projected the image one frame at a time on a screen behind the models. That's how they filmed Kong's removal of Anne's clothing. Originally, Cooper had wires attached to her clothes to pull them off her body. The model's movements were then matched to hers. Unfortunately, O'Brien and Cooper forgot to patent their approach, thereby losing a fortune. Oh, wow. That's interesting there. Once again, more legal trouble for the Cooper, <laughs> the Cooper family, Cooper State. Um, if they know that... Like, it, it's... <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just, just wow. That's kind of all I can say about that. There, there's a there's a whole alternate timeline where Cooper got all of these things settled out, and there's just a whole different film world <laughs> based on Cooper stuff. Um, as an adult, um, Marion C. Cooper became involved in the motion picture industry while filming The Four Feathers in 1939 in Africa. He came into contact with the family of Balboons. This gave him the idea to make a picture about primates. A year later, he got to RKO. Cooper wanted to film a terror gorilla picture um, as the story being fleshed out. Cooper decided to make his gorilla giant-sized. Um, what the... Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I, 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 they got the timeline a little mixed up here because I said while filming the form Feathers in Africa, he came in contact with Psycho. You can't. He said the movie came out in 1939. I have to look that up now as a detail because, like, well, if that was released in 1939, how did this movie inspire the King Kong of 1933? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that detail works. Um, um, in addition to the models of Kong, William, uh, sorry, Willis H. O'Brien had a 20 foot high head constructed. And that's one thing about this movie. Kong looked kind of crazy because he had like that stupid smile on his face. Like, eh, it's a know. real, yeah. It's, it's like because it was so big, they didn't, they couldn't do as much with it. You know, what I mean, the facial expressions and everything. So, yeah. But so they, they did the best what they had for sure and got more out of it than they probably even they expected necessarily. Um, let's see here. Cooper stated the idea for Kong fighting warplanes up at the building came from him seeing a plane flying over the New York insurance building, then the tallest building in the world. He came up with the ending before the rest of the story had even started. Um, without any conscious effort of thought, I immediately saw in my mind's eye a giant gorilla on top of the building. That's similar to a note you had a little bit earlier, earlier in the podcast. Yeah. Ooh, um, let's see here. Um, Cooper was also influenced by Douglas Burden's accounts of a Komodo dragon and wanted to pit his terror gorilla against a dinosaur version of these reptiles. Um, stating to Burden, I also had to firmly in mind to giantize both the gorilla and your dragons to make them really huge. However, I believed in personalizing and focusing attention on one main character, and from the very beginning, I intended to make it a gigantic gorilla, no matter no matter what else I surrounded him with. Around this time, Cooper began to refer to this project as a giant terror gorilla picture featuring a giant semi-humanoid gorilla pit against modern civilization. So he like he wanted to do a giant Komodo dragon, but then he realized, like, I can't have two giant creatures in the movie, otherwise it detracts from King Kong. Kyle, now what did Willis O'Brien, what did he do for this film? Do you remember? Um, Willis O'Brien, I believe, uh, he... Um, whew, that's a good question. Real quick, give me one minute here. I'm pretty sure I had him in the cast here. Um, no, I do not know. I do not know. Nope. Well, prior to working on King Kong, he worked for Thomas Edison. Small world. <laughs> <laughs> Light bulb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's... <laughs> I like, oh, yeah, he's like 1933, so then you can go back, you know, 40 years, and like, oh, yeah, I worked for this guy, too. Uh, uh, this, Thomas yeah, but how would you like to have that on your resume? Well, I worked for, for Thomas, Thomas Edison. Yeah. You know, Tom. Tommy. Sure, sure <laughs> Tommy boy. <laughs> uh, this film is included on Roger Ebert's great movies list. And, Kyle, I only have one more fact, and you know it's the big one, so anything go else you've got? No, um, if you have anything oh, okay, else okay. before... Um, give me Okay, I'll take a couple more notes here, then we'll go on to the last one from you. The shot of Kong falling from the Empire State Building, discussed at greater length in the post... Um, uh, 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 sorry, let me restart that. The shot of Kong falling away from the Empire State Building was designed to be similar to the shot where Kong realizes he picked the wrong woman out of the hotel room and just drops her. 
there were too many effects in the comic shop and never was completed to satisfaction. Um, all right. Then also, Denim's final shot of the Stegosaur appears to hit the beast in the eye as blood is seen coming from that area. In O'Brien's existing footage of the creation, um, Ralph Holdy shoots a baby Triceratops in the eye, killing it and causing a mother dinosaur to charge and eventually gore him. So there's a little bit of a story, a darker story there at the end there. Um... Uh, when it came in time to the end of the film, um, Marion Cooper agreed that Kong should walk upright at times. So the only times in the film is he actually walks fully upright in order to appear even more intimidating in the city landscape. Hmm. And um, let's see here. Oh, oh well, this he, is, didn't he walk upright in the jungle too, though? I don't think he did. I think he had a little bit more of a hunched walk to him. I, I, well, the idea was having him more upright in the, the civilization world altogether. So he was almost like fully humanoid walking in the city. In the city? Oh, okay. Yeah, but in the... You're right, and I'm a little bit wrong. <laughs> That's the answer. Um, okay, the alleged existence of the lost spider pit sequence is the most strongly debated topic in classic movie history, mm-hmm. ranging from a scene where Kong, after shaking the sellers from the huge tree branch, they fall and are eaten alive by giant spiders and other reptilian-like monsters. One side said that it was shown at a preview screen, but frightened the audience too badly, and according to the director, stopped the picture cold, so he removed it. The other side of the debate is that still prints of the sequence were actually made, but never shot for the film. The true fates of the scene's existence remains unknown. And later, of course, Peter Jackson kind of recreated that scene in his own imagination for the 2000, uh, I believe it was 2005 reboot, basically, they did of it, or remake, not reboot. Reboot implies a series, they didn't make a sequel to that one. Um, but basically, they remade that scene, and it is definitely... Uh, uh, it, it evokes the idea of spider scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was an amazing scene. Um, okay, and let's see if I have one or two more to go. Um, yeah, I want to keep it there, and we're going to do your last note here right now. All right. So, this film um, was greenlit following the runaway success of this documentary titled Ngagi, which is. I-N-G-A-G-I from 1930, which claimed to be a real account of the discovery of a tribe of gorilla-worshipping savages in Africa who submitted their women to the apes for sexual purposes. This film was notorious for its nudity. Viewed today, it is patently fake. The so-called African women were actresses in blackface, and the whole thing was shot in Los Angeles. Long thought lost, several nitrate copies exist within the Library of Congress, but obviously because of its outdated racial perspectives, it will never be shown again. However, being the super sleuth and detective that Kyle and I are, we it is actually on YouTube. In full length. <laughs> In well, full length. Being in the Library lot. of Congress means it is accessible, right. so clearly so someone has digitized it and put it, it online. It is... No. It is about an hour and 27 minutes long, um, and it is claimed to be the first found footage film. Now, with that being said, uh, me and Kyle didn't sit here and watch the whole thing. We kind of just zoomed through it, because I, I was like, Kyle, oh, this is amazing. We have to see what this Give is about. Give it a light skimming, I would say. Yeah, yeah so we did. We just kind of surfed through it. Um, my first impressions of it, uh, some of the stuff that you see in this documentary, if you will, as I use my air quotes there, mm-hmm. um, is stuff I don't think that you could fake uh, in 1930. There is scenes of... Uh, animal cruelty? Oh, a lot of animal There is cruelty. like a rhinoceros that they have captured, and they, they stole the baby, and they are just like dissecting it, cutting it open, I guess, for meat or something. Yeah. There is several uh, killings of lions and skinning of lions that the tribesmen are running around with celebrating. There is a shooting of baboons and apes. Um, they're, uh, just some very, very poor, uh, blackface, if you will, where you see it's a, clearly a white person with, they didn't even try to do it very yeah. well where you could still see like the top of the forehead and like they raise their arms up and the you whole bottom part of their arms white and there's the black hands, yeah. which was clearly wrong and is still wrong it, to this day. It contains all the worst things you ever heard about happening in the 1920s of, of Hollywood filmmaking, basically yes. like that. It contains a little bit of everything. Um, and Kyle's mouth was just dropped on the desk while he was watching this. He was like, what? yeah, what? he's like, you can't fake that. You can't fake that. You can't, you can't fake that in 1925 or 1930, wherever it was. And it's just like, it, the, was, uh, the, it kind of reminded me. The only other thing that I could compare it to was that movie called cannibal Holocaust, where, um, it was a found footage film about 
a group of the documentary people. I think there was like four or six people, like three guys, three girls, or two guys, two girls, that went over to like the Congo somewhere over there, and they actually um, show them taking a turtle shell off and skinning a turtle and eating it and all that, and then it shows them being brutally murdered over there. Now, the director of that movie actually got taken to court until for murder until he could prove that these were just actors and that they had to bring them out. But yeah. for the shock value, especially for 1930, I was just flabbergasted by this. But uh, I just thought it was very uh, weird that this film, Kong, King Kong, was greenlit off of a film like that. Um, Kyle, what did you think? <laughs> Uh, yes, of the of the, the King Kong uh, King Kong movie or the Inaga. 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 I, I yes, I would say it was definitely like it represents the the absolute worst of of what Hollywood filmmaking was doing of that era and some subsequent eras and of the past as well. And uh, I found it personally deeply disturbing in many respects because like and we even, were just skimming through. We weren't even yeah, like yeah. So no, I I. I there is a morbid curiosity to it, which I can find somewhat fascinating. But uh, I would agree. I understand. Like uh, I can't remember what they actually call it, that that era of like the cannibal Holocaust movies, where like the um, the French core um, movies especially to be um, actually disgusting. Um, but this movie is certainly disturbing, both for the blackface, the animal cruelty, and uh, a lot of the things they did in that movie are just like, oh, these are just some of the worst choices any human can make, and it makes you disgusted people because in the end. because there is so, there's also a scene in there like uh, after they they skin the hippo or the rhino or hippo whatever it was. That you see vultures just eating the corpse, and you're like, well, even like the the core of this uh, narrative implies that they send up basically um, female sacrifices to these gorillas. To well, be- the reason they do that is because once there's the women that uh, it's stated that there's women that can't have children, and they mm-hmm. take offerings to these apes so that they would bless them and have make them be fertile. They, you know, it's yeah. it a weird premise. Um, original, but it was a weird premise. For yes, Minnesota, yes, you know, yes. I, but I, also, I, I would recommend. I would recommend watching Igagi, uh, just from what I've seen. Even for adults only, certainly I would uh, yes, say to no, a child no, by no, all no, degree. No. You know, um, and you need to understand the context of that era and of the time, and even then, it's still like it's like it's a movie you have to morally condemn. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, um, shock value definitely. Mm-hmm. But um, out of that came King Kong. I guess the King Kong got greenlit because of that. Yeah. So. It's interesting to relate those two histories exactly. together and so, just see, like, oh, okay, King Kong wouldn't have been made without this movie being made, and uh, I, I, I loosely based, I'll say, yeah, loosely based, or like, you know, there, like, there's a clear through line of like, oh, I understand, um, especially with the documentary style of the filmmaking itself, and then because King there's some Kong weird about, music going on too, like circus music or something during the yes, documentary, and you're like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so let's just forget about Igagi. Kyle. What did you think of King Kong from 1933? King Kong is an absolute classic of a film um, and still holds up the very basic nature of today. Um, it's still a solid plot. Um, it's not like a... It doesn't have any... It doesn't have too many uh, moral misgivings of today's standards or like that. There's nothing that I think like is outright like typical about it um, just by looking at it from today's lens. And I overall enjoyed the film and respect its um, um, its engineering, the stop motion action, and all that kind of stuff too. So overall, I think it's a really good film, um, worth watching when you got the chance, and definitely it deserves to be in that list of a thousand one movies you see before you die. Certainly. So overall, I I really like the film. I don't know if I want to sit down and watch it all the time, but it is a, an interesting film, a, a historical relic that um, should be held in great reverence. Well, it is because it is the number forty three greatest movie of all time according to our list that we've been doing. So, yeah. so Jimbo, um, how do you feel? About oh it? man, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of monster movies. Um, it takes me back to when I was a kid when there was a local guy here, uh, kind of like Elvira, uh, mm-hmm. his name that would introduce monster movies or scary movies, and his name was Sammy Terry. And I remember staying up when I was a kid and watching some of the King Kong, uh, not King Kong, um, Godzilla movies would come on, and just different movies of that era. I love when the two the monsters fight, and in this movie you have plenty of those. You have King Kong versus the um, T Rex. T Rex. You have the King Kong versus the Brontosaurus. You have King Kong versus what was the the uh, was it like a pterodactyl or something? Oh, I think you're talking about the the one like the one in the water. Yeah, there was yeah. a pterodactyl one too. Yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. So uh, then there's the one that looks like the giant snake and all that. You know what I mean? So yeah. I love it when monsters fight. I just, I just, I'm entertained by it. And to know that it was all done by stop motion 
makes it that much more special because you know the time and effort that was taken in there to get that shot created. Oh, yeah, yeah. It makes it worthwhile. So uh, it's definitely a good movie, definitely one that I would definitely recommend. Uh, it is a black and white, um, and it's a little slow at first. Uh, but once it gets going and they get to the island, it really picks up and it just just goes. So uh, definitely check it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Kyle, anything else to add? I think we're about ready to end on, end on a good note there. I think um, this is a good film. You should all watch it. Right. So I think next week um, we're going to do one for the ladies. Pretty woman. Pretty woman. The we're ladies gonna, and me. I love movies. Kyle's going to be walking down the street. Strutting. <laughs> just strutting. Swinging then He's going to come in with his Roy Orbison sunglasses exactly, on and exactly. everything. So. Yeah, yeah, as they do every day. Yeah, we're going to try to do Pretty Woman. Um, then a couple more in the future that we're doing uh, pretty soon. We've got Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We got Chinatown. We got Rebel Without a Cause. We got Schindler's List. And um, our our birthday celebrations getting ready to come up is like April 9th or eleventh. I think it's April 9th. Right we don't want to tell you what it is because let me just say there's a lot of fans of this franchise, and I'm not really a fan. So this will be interesting because I don't think I've even actually watched this movie all the way through. That's fair. I think and, I, also, I, think I, I also agree. Like I'm not really a fan either. Really? <laughs> no, I'm not that at all. <laughs> that shocks me. But uh, I know a lot of the people in our Facebook group are, so I can't wait to... Uh, upset a lot of people. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not upsetting anybody else. Uh, I try not It'll to. It'll be fine. No, no. But, uh, uh, this, one, this one that we're going to do uh, is probably... It might go into a two-part or it'll be a very long episode, birthday episode. So Almost a daddly. Uh, we might have to record in two separate things and put them out, so... But with that being said, I think our episode's coming to a close, and that's wrap. And cut.